Excellent. Good evening. Uh, we're continuing our study of the Baptist Catechism, uh, as Pastor Steve said in his prayer. And we are specifically, uh, we're using the edition that's found in our catechism booklets that we give away at the church. I mention that every time, by the way, because uh, there's an extra question in that version than you won't, that you won't find in other versions of it. That's why I always make that clarification. Um, and this evening, we come to question eight. Uh, and this question has to do with the single greatest theme of the Bible, God. Right? That, what is the Bible about? God. Right? This is the great theme. And our question this evening is this. What is God? What is God? You ever thought about that? Like, how, how, do, you, how do you answer that? What is God? What is Godness? What is God? Now, I, I confess that the subject at hand is beyond me. Um, I believe that it is beyond everyone, and I'm humbled before the matter about which I must speak. Uh, there are better men than I who have taught on this subject and in a much deeper way than I can go. Uh, the question is deep, and nobody can fathom fully what God is. But it's nevertheless very important for us to consider and think about the question, what is God? And we don't just think about that question, we think through to an answer. And if the answer is to be correct, it's going to have to come from God himself. So we need to look at the scriptures if we're to understand anything about what God is. And just real quick, this, uh, this question is going to be divided into two sermons. Um, so we're going to look at it again next month. Um, but what I want to do this evening is give a 30,000-foot view of what our catechism teaches about God in his nature and attributes uh, in the first half of the question this evening. And I simply want to affirm and proclaim to you what God says about himself in Scripture. Uh, now, before we get going, I, I, I'm just going to be straight up with you. Some of the things that we're going to learn about God are going to breed questions in your mind, right? It's usually how it goes. You learn something true, and then it makes you ask questions about other things that maybe you hadn't thought about before. Um, that's fine. As we will see, God is incomprehensible. So there will be questions, and I'm probably not going to answer them, just so you know that. Probably not going to answer your questions, at least not in the sermon, because there's not enough time. Uh, but as always, I will make myself available to each of you as if there's anything that you would like to ask, right? Whatever I know, whatever Pastor Stephen knows, that's yours, right? But I do, I'm not going to address everything in a sermon. Um, so all that I want to do this evening is consider what our catechism affirms about God and then flesh it out some from the Bible, um, as I said earlier, the knowledge and skill of all men are nothing compared to the subject of God. But regardless of my limited skill, I can say this. The things that we are going to see from the scriptures this evening about God are going to knock us to the ground. They really will. They'll leave you standing in awe of who God is. And we're going to learn this evening and, and, and next time we gather to study the catechism. We're going to learn something simple but profound. Here it is. God is not like you. God is not like us. God is God. And that's about all we can say. God is God. So let's consider the question, what is God? But first, let's pray. Holy God, you are so high above us. You are majestic. You are glorious. You are comprehended by none but yourself. You're beyond us. You're beyond what we can fathom. And so we ask now that you would teach us about yourself from your word. Give us a glimpse of what you are. 
Show us something of your holiness. Show us something of your glory. And revealing yourself to us, change us. Leave us in awe of the only true and living God. Grant that by understanding more of what you are, that we would have a deeper respect and love for you. Change us this evening and show us yourself. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So our question for this evening, if you've got it there on your uh, liturgy paper, you're going to need it because I'm going to make you read it with me. Uh, the, que the question for this evening, I want you to read the answer with me. Question. What is God? Answer. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Amen. Amen. That's who God is. Or that's what God is. And in this sermon, we're going to consider this. What is God? So first, our catechism declares that God is a spirit. Now, if nothing else, this means that God has no physical or material body. He is pure spirit, or rather, he is a pure spirit. Uh, Jesus tells us this explicitly in John chapter 4, verse 24. He says there, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. But he says God is spirit. So God has no body, right? As our uh, confession says in chapter 2, God is without body, parts, or passions. He is without body. That is, he is immaterial, right? And real quick, whenever people say today something's immaterial, that means that it doesn't matter very much. That's not what we mean. God is immaterial in that he has no physical body. Now, in light of this teaching of Jesus, and, and we could see elsewhere in the scriptures that God has no material body, we have to deal with the fact that the Bible talks about God having physical traits, don't we? Underneath are the everlasting arms. God shelters you with his wings. He holds you in his hands. Right? Sometimes the Bible ascribes physical traits to God, and they are meant to be understood metaphorically. They're meant to be understood symbolically. Uh, when the Bible speaks about physical body parts and, and says that God has them, usually you're going to read that in poetic portions of Scripture, by the way, uh, usually the Psalms, things like that. Uh, what's going on in those passages is that God is communicating certain truths about himself to us in a way that we can understand them. Right? His arms and his hands represent his power and his ability to protect and care for his people. His face right, being turned towards you represents uh, his blessing and his kindness, and his face being turned away from people means that he's not blessing them. Uh, his eyes and ears represent the fact that he knows all, and he sees all, and he hears all. He's omniscient, and he's fully aware of all that goes on in his world. Um, you get the idea, I think. While God does not literally have a body, we do, right? And so God communicates to us in a way that we understand uh, something of the truth of, of what's being said about him. So truths are being communicated in ways that we can understand them. Uh, by the way, to paraphrase John Calvin, uh, that's how the scriptures speak to us about God in general. right? Calvin said that God talks to us in baby talk in the scriptures because he's too big for us to fully understand. So he talks about himself in ways that we can understand them as finite human beings. Um, but again, the, the divine nature, God, cannot be seen. Uh, only one person of the Trinity can be seen, and that is Jesus, right, the Son of God. And only Jesus can be seen because he is truly human, right, and he has, he has a human nature. He can be seen because he took a human nature to himself 
and the human nature is visible. But God, properly speaking, the divine nature, God cannot be seen. As John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God. God may manifest himself visibly sometimes in the Old Testament, but it's still not the divine nature that's being seen. No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen the divine nature because he is immaterial. Um, notice something interesting. I, I didn't catch this. I, I had a commentary on the catechism point this out to me. The catechism says God is a spirit. It doesn't just say God is spirit. Right? And, and there's the question, why does it say God is a spirit? It says a spirit because our forefathers in the faith wanted to clearly affirm that God is a person. He's a person. He's a spirit. He's not, just a, he's not a force. He's not this cosmic force, but he has personality. He is a he, right? He is a he. He does things with volition and will. He speaks. He acts consciously. He works. He does things. He's not just a force, but he is a he. God is a person. So in summary, just in this first thing so far, we see that God is an active, speaking, working volitional, willful, conscious being who has no physical body. And already we should be knocked to the ground if we think about this. And why do I say that? Because right? it's so basic, right? Well, of course, God doesn't have a body, right? Why should this leave us in awe? Can you point to anything in this entire created universe that is immaterial and yet a person at the same time? No. Now, there are immaterial things that truly exist, like laws of logic and things like that, but they're not persons. There's nothing in creation like this. We have already come face to face just in this first thing. God is a spirit. We've already come face to face with the holy God. Holy meaning separate, distinct, unique, having a quality of otherness. You've already come face to face with that because there is nothing else in the whole world that is immaterial and yet still a person. God alone is God. He's a spirit. The second thing our catechism affirms about God is that he is infinite. And this has become one of my favorite things to think about. Me and Stephen talk about this from time to time. What does infinite mean? Infinite means that something cannot be measured. It cannot be contained. It is without boundaries. Uh, that is, it cannot be bound by anything. Our catechism says, by saying that God is infinite, is saying that God is beyond material space. Right? He is not, this is weird, but he is not confined to the universe. He cannot be measured. He expands. Try to get your mind around this, right? If you sit, we, can't, we cannot fathom infinitude. We can't fathom infinity. God expands beyond the created order infinitely. Second Chronicles chapter 2, verse 6 says this, But who is able to build him a house since heaven, even the highest heaven, cannot contain him? King Solomon says that the temple that he built for the worship of God was not, in the fullest sense, God's dwelling place. Why? Because nothing can contain him. Nothing means nothing can contain him. That would include the entire universe, not just the temple. So catch this and marvel. This, this, I, and this will take you some, some mind power to think through. God exists both within the created world, and outside of it at the same time. 
God exists within and outside of the created universe because nothing can contain him. Just real quick, try to think, what exists outside of the universe? I don't know. Like, I'm stuck here. Right? The idea that there's something, that something could be beyond what has been made. So put it this way. Something is beyond what is. <laughs> That's God. He is both within the created world and outside of it at the same time. We cannot fathom this. We can affirm that and say, okay, to some degree I understand that concept, but we do not understand that. But yet he cannot be contained by anything. He is both in and beyond the created universe at the same time. And God's infinitude naturally points us to something that we all already confess. We all know this. God is omnipresent. There, he is everywhere. Right? Psalm 139 beautifully states, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Right? And then he goes on. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the grave, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, you're there. David's saying, there's nowhere that I am that you are not. God is infinite. There is nowhere that he is not. <laughs> Even beyond the created universe, he is there as well. He is the ever-present God. And because of this, this should always remind us from the children's catechism, nothing can be hidden from God. His eye is upon the whole creation. There is nowhere that God is not. <laughs> Hear that phrase again and worship God. There is nowhere that God is not. That's beautiful. He's huge. He's infinite. And I want to highlight one more thing about the infinitude of God before we move on. And I think this, was, this one is really, really important. Because I think this, more than, more than almost anything that I've personally studied about God, and just His nature, has humbled me. Since God is infinite, since He has no end, since there is no containing Him, that means that He is incomprehensible to finite creatures. He is incomprehensible to finite creatures. Incomprehensible means that we cannot fully know him in all of the ways that he can be known. If you could know him in all of the ways that could be known, he would have an end, wouldn't he? You've come to the end of the knowledge of God, and now you know all the things that there is to know about him. But if he cannot be contained, then you can never come to the end of him. He is incomprehensible. You cannot know him in all the ways that he can be known, nor can you fully, completely understand one thing to the bottom about him. He is only fully understood. He is only fully comprehended by himself. The finite cannot wrap its mind around the infinite. Brothers and sisters, this means that we can know God truly, but we can never know him comprehensively. We can never know everything about him or fully understand one thing to the fullest extent. Here's some scripture for that, by the way. Psalm 145 verse 3 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. God is unsearchable. You can't get your mind around him fully. Job 26, 14. Job, speaking of his power, says, But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Just the attribute of how mighty God is. Job says we can't even fathom his power. Isaiah 55 verse 9, God says, My ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. What does that mean? You cannot fully understand the thoughts 
the ways and the wisdom of God. You can't fathom it. 1 Timothy 6.16, speaking of God, Paul says, God alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light. Paul says you cannot approach God. If you can't approach him, what makes you think you can comprehend him? Deuteronomy 29.29 says the secret things of the Lord belong to our God. There are things that God has not revealed. And in light of the rest of the things that we've read, that would include things about himself that he has not revealed to us in Scripture. Brothers and sisters, the only reason and way that we can know anything about God is for God to stoop down low and tell us something about himself. That's how that works. He has to tell us. He is so far above us that we cannot grasp him. He must speak to us or we cannot know him. And we cannot know even what we can know about him. We cannot know everything about him because he is without boundaries and without end. He is infinite. We cannot know him fully. But hear me, I want to encourage you. We can know him truly. Some people think incomprehensible means you can't know anything about God. That's not true. Let me illustrate this for you, and I'm stealing this from Dr. Samuel Renahan. I wish I came up with this illustration, but I did not because I'm not that good. If you go to a redwood tree in California and try to put your arms around it, best of luck. You absolutely cannot. It's simply too big to get your arms around. In other words, your arms cannot comprehend the tree. You can't get your arms around the tree. But that does not mean that you can't touch the tree, see the tree, see the leaves, feel the bark, and know true things about the tree. In a similar way, we cannot get our arms around God, but we can know true things about him. So though he is incomprehensible, he is knowable. And he is knowable because he has told us things about himself in the scriptures. So brothers and sisters, we are knocked to the ground again. And if you're not, you're not paying attention. God is infinite. There is nothing else in the created world that is infinite. The third thing our catechism affirms about God is that he is eternal. Deuteronomy 33:27 says, The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Our God is forever. Period. He has no beginning, and he has no end. Uh, if I could put it in some redneck kind of language, he is eternal in both directions. He has no beginning, and he has no end. Moses says this in Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Hear me, we do not serve a God like the God of the Mormons or the other pagan gods that once did not exist. Far from it, we serve the eternal and everlasting God. Just as there is nowhere that God is not, there was never a time when God was not. What a thought. What a thought that that is. Everything we have ever encountered in this created world has a beginning point. If you believe Genesis 1, right in the beginning God created, then that means everything in this world has a beginning point. It has an origin point. Everything that we interact with has a time when it came into being. And if it came into being, that means that there was a time when it did not exist, but not God. He simply has always been. 
He is the eternal one. And only God, this is important to catch, only God is eternal in and of himself. Eternality properly belongs to God alone. Why do I say that? Well, I say that because we need to be clear. The souls of men live forever, don't they? The souls of men live forever. And on the last day, all the dead will be resurrected to bodies that don't die. Whether that be to eternal life or eternal damnation. Right? But all men get bodies that don't die. And souls live on forever. But listen, the eternality of souls and bodies only exists in one direction. That is from the time that they are created and onward. They do, they're not eternal backwards, so to speak. But more than that, the eternality of souls and resurrected bodies is a granted eternality. Have you considered that? It's granted. That is, God gives eternal existence to men. But we do not possess this in and of ourselves. Only God has eternality in and of himself. He gives it to creatures. Another thought, since God is eternal, we must also affirm that he exists outside of time. Again, this one always makes me laugh. He was before time began. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, that is time, in the beginning, God. If God was there in the beginning to make everything, that means he made the beginning. He pre-existed the beginning. If you can try to wrap your mind around that. Before there was time, there was God. He created time. He is therefore outside of it because he existed before it. And since God is not bound to time, but is rather its creator, all of time is at once to him. Though he operates and speaks and acts within human history, he is not bound to time like we are. Again, can you fathom that? Not being bound to time? Like, we are so bound up in time, we're like fish that don't know that they're wet. Right? Like, fish, fish don't, they're like, what's water? Right? Because <laughs> they're in it. You're like, well, what's time? Right? Because we're constantly bound to time, but not God. He is outside of it. We have nothing to compare this to, and we have no experience to relate to this. Timelessness, being outside of time. That's, that is, it's an, it's, it sounds like a nonsensical thing for us because we cannot comprehend this, but God himself is indeed outside of time because he existed before it. Lastly, on the subject of God's eternality, we affirm that God, the divine nature, does not die. God does not die. 1 Timothy 1.17 says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible to the only God. God is immortal. He is eternal and therefore immortal. He cannot die. And I bring this up briefly to, to clarify something. Sometimes we say God died on a cross. And that is actually a, tr a true statement. Why? Because Jesus is God. But we do not mean that the divine nature died. Only the human nature of the Son of God died at the cross. But God did not die because God is eternal and God cannot die. And the only reason that the Son of God died, the only reason that God died, so to speak, in his human nature, was to die as a substitute for sinners. But properly speaking, God cannot die because he is eternal. Brothers and sisters, again, I say to you, there is nothing like him. Fourthly and, and finally for this evening... Our catechism affirms that God is unchangeable. 
there's a lot in this. There's a lot in this that I cannot unpack right now. God is unchangeable. Psalm 102 verse 27 says, but you are the same. You are the same and your years have no end. All things in this universe change, but not him. You are the same. He does not change in his nature. He cannot be added to or subtracted from. God absolutely does not change. A couple of the most beloved verses in Scripture, James 1.17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What, what James is saying there is, as the stars, the Father of lights, right? So he's got stars in your mind. The stars move all the time, do they not? Constantly the stars are moving. Constellations are moving all around us. Not God. He's the Father of the lights that move, but the Father of lights does not move like the lights do. There is no shadow due to change in him. Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Here God just says it. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God says there to the Israelites, Because I don't change, you don't die. Because I don't change and my love for you doesn't change, I will not, I will not destroy you. God simply does not change in any way. He is utter perfection. He is the definition of perfection and goodness and holiness. And he is eternally and unchangeably perfect. He's unchangeable. Unchangeable. And this means then that he does not change his mind. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God says he doesn't change. He doesn't change his mind for any reason ever. But I, want to, I will answer this. Some people hear that God doesn't change, and then he doesn't change his mind, and they say, well, what about those texts of Scripture that make it seem like God changed his mind? Especially if it's the King James Version of the Bible, it says God repented. God repented, or God regretted doing something. Well, at this point, J.G. Voss is very helpful, and I'm just going to read from him. He has a commentary on the Westminster Larger Catechism. Very, very good commentary. It's like 25 bucks. I recommend you get it. But Voss said this. Follow along here. This is very good. It's a few paragraphs. If God is unchangeable, why does the Bible speak of God repenting or changing his mind? As, for example, in the case of the city of Nineveh in Jonah 3.10. Here's his answer. God himself never changes. God's creatures change. And the result of this is that the relation between them and God changes. In the case of Nineveh, for example, God did not really change his mind. It was the people of Nineveh who really changed. They turned from their wicked way. God did not change his mind for the whole series of events, including Jonah's preaching, the Ninevites turning from their wickedness, and God's, quote, repenting of the evil that he had said he would do, end quote, was all part of God's original plan. In other words, even before Jonah arrived at Nineveh, God planned and intended to, quote, change his mind following the Ninevites' change of their conduct. But when God changes his mind according to plan, 
it is clear that he does not really change his mind at all, but only changes his dealings with his creatures. That is a good answer. That is good. And listen, there's more to say on that topic, but for a brief summary answer, that is an excellent answer. But know this, God does not change. And because he does not change, he does not change his mind. And what a glorious thing for us that God doesn't change his mind about us. Right? That he's constant. He's unshifting. He doesn't change. Or, yeah, he's, 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 he doesn't shift. He, he doesn't change. But God's unchangeableness means a few more things for us to consider. If God doesn't change, he doesn't learn. I love this. Right? Because like, I, I want to know everything. <laughs> and God actually does. <laughs> right? So since God does not change, God does not learn. Check this out. This verse actually makes me laugh from time to time. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 14. Speaking of God, whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? This is God saying, who ever taught me anything? Anyone? Anyone come to mind that taught me? I didn't think so. That's what the Lord's saying here. The answer is no one has ever taught God anything. Hear me, if God cannot change, this is super important for us as Calvinists, by the way, to catch this. If God cannot change, then knowledge and information cannot be added to him. That means that his knowledge of what creatures are going to do is not dependent upon him looking into the future and seeing what they're going to choose of their own free will. If that's how God knows future events, then that means God learned something because he didn't know what they were going to do until he looked. And by the way, that's the only way to have a libertarian free will is that no one can know what you're going to do next, not even you, which would mean God can't either. That's why, that's why uh, uh, no disrespect to anyone, but Arminianism is, uh, puts you on the path to a heresy called open theism. But we do thank God for the blessed inconsistencies of our Arminian brothers and sisters. But God cannot change. And since he cannot change, he cannot learn. Check this. How glorious is this? We, everything we've ever known, we had to learn. But God has all knowledge in and of himself. In fact, we could say that God knows all things because he has ordained all things in and of himself, independent of his creation. He doesn't change. So then all knowledge that exists is from him. He is the fountainhead of all knowledge because it all comes from him. Another thing to consider here, and this is going to sound strange, Bear with me. I talked to Nick Merriweather to make sure I was using proper philosophical language here. If God does not change, then that means that God, properly speaking, does not exist. Oh, some of you looked up. God does not exist, properly speaking. But don't panic. Hear me out. To exist, properly speaking, means to come into being. That's what it means to exist. Something came into being. To come into being means what? A change has occurred. Whatever just came into being went from a state of not being to a state of being. That means it, it changed. The biggest change that there can be. Non-being to being. But God does not change. He does not go from one state to another. Therefore, we can affirm that God does not exist like other beings. Rather, as our confession says in chapter 2, God subsists in and of himself. 
or, and I know I'm about to use the word exist because it's just how we commonly speak, God exists in and of himself. He just is. I love this. I love this. Pastor Stephen's been studying this a whole lot more than me. This is great stuff. To use the language of the Bible, God simply is. Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Moses says, well, who do I tell them sent me? Tell them I am sent you. He just is. He just is. He is not becoming. Because becoming means you are in a state of change. He just is. He is not changing from one state to another. From one mind to another. As Pastor Stephen said this morning before we took communion, he is not changing from one emotion to another. God does not have emotions like we do. In fact, whenever the Bible gives the language of emotion to God, it's one of those things like whenever the Bible attributes physical body parts to God. It's speaking to us in a way that we can understand something about him, but nevertheless, God, properly speaking, does not have emotions. To have an emotion means that something happened to you that brought an emotion out of you. If I give you food, I made you happy. I did something that affected your emotion. If I slap you in the face, I made you mad because I did something to you that brought about a change. But God is unchangeable. Nothing can bring about a change in him. He just is. He is. Show me another one like this. Show me, another, show me anything like this. He just is. He needs nothing. He needs nothing. He is dependent upon nothing. He is dependent upon no one. He just is. And he always has been. And he has always been exactly what he is at all times. He is the unchangeable God. Brothers and sisters, we went through a lot. So what do we do with all of this? I think that there is only one proper application. Please hear me. Bow down before him. I don't, I don't know of anything else you're supposed to do with this. Yes, there are many. Uh, I, I take that back. There are many comforts that we can draw from these things. I'm not taking away from that. But the chief thing, when you come face to face with a God like this, is you worship him. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 18 says, To whom then will you liken God? Or with what likeness, com- or what likeness compare with him? He's saying there's nothing you can compare him to. Worship him. Confess that there are none like him. And get on your face and worship the God who is worthy of your worship simply because of who he is. This is all very humbling to consider. And listen, I have barely even begun to scratch the top of the surface of the surface on what God is. He is magnificent. He is astounding. God is God. And a word of warning to you here real quick. Psalm chapter 50 verse 21 says this. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Another translation is God says to his people. You thought I was just like you. And he's charging them with it. That was their sin. You thought I was like you. 
Brothers and sisters, it is a terrible sin to assume that God is like us. The only ways that we are like him are the ways that are a tiny shadow of some of his perfections. But the things that we have considered this evening are in no way like us. They are called the incommunicable attributes of God. These are things that belong to him and only him, and we can't have them. He's not like us. Please do not ever commit such a great sin as to assume that God is like you. Because he's not. He's God. He's God. Brothers and sisters, we are physical, we are finite, we are comprehensible, we are only in one place at one time, we can be measured, we have a beginning and an end, we are bound to time, we change every second, we change our minds, we learn, we are dependent upon so many things in this world. Brothers and sisters, all of that is to say, we are not God. We are not God. He's beyond us. He's glorious. He's unique. Worship Him. And worship Him in humility. And worship him also, and I can't stop without saying this. Worship him because in Christ, God lowered himself and united himself to a true created human nature. And in that nature, hear me, hear me, that big God that we just talked about. In that human nature, God subjected himself, so to speak, to physicality, finitude, limit, time, mutability, and all the rest within that nature. And why would God lower himself so much to become a man? Why would God subject himself to something so beneath his majesty? To save us. To save us. To save the very ones who have offended against his majesty. To bear our sins as a substitute and die on a cross to give us a righteousness that we could never possess in and of ourselves, and to rise victorious on the third day as the Savior of sinners. Worship this God. There is no God like him in his nature or in his works. Worship this God, for he is worthy beyond all that we could ever imagine. Amen. Let's pray. God, we stand uh, in awe of just of who you are. God, there are many questions that we have in light of uh, a teaching like this, a sermon like this. God, I pray, if nothing else, that you would teach us to just confess in our hearts when we contemplate you and say, he's just not like me. He's so much more glorious than me. He's bigger than me. I cannot comprehend him. Humble us, Lord, as we consider who you are. And use that to sanctify us because the more we stand in awe of you, the more we will love you, the more we will respect you, the more we will reverence you in our hearts. Help us to say, God is God and I am not. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.